Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we are delighted to have with us Nadia Vietz. At Harris Bricken, we proud ourselves on being international attorneys, but Nadia personifies that idea. Originally from Germany, she's also licensed as an attorney in Washington State and heads our Spain office. Nadia, welcome to Global Law and Business. Hi, Fred. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Nadia, just to get things uh, started, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how it is that you went from East Germany to Barcelona and points in between? Yes, that is, in fact, a very long story that I'll try to cut short. I was raised in East Germany and studied law in East Germany and then did my first exchange program in France and studied uh, at the French University. And that's where I met other students from Spain and uh, I decided to move to Spain and uh, got my first job opportunity. That was more than 20 years ago. And that's when I first worked for Monerea Maya, a Spanish law firm, where I actually just two years ago joined as a partner. And then a couple of years down the road, I had the opportunity to move to Seattle and started working for Harris Bricken at your firm, which I really enjoyed. I was almost 10 years with you guys, and I was able to sit for the bar exam. And uh, hence now uh, I'm holding three licenses in three jurisdictions. And uh, we moved back almost 10 years ago, and um, I opened the office for Harris Bricken. And ever since, I've been working with U.S. clients and uh, German-speaking clients also here in Spain and very much enjoyed. And two years ago, we signed the alliance between uh, our Spanish firm, Manorio Meyer, and uh, Harris Bricken. Uh, since uh, you said I opened the office, I'm, I'm the off-counsel for Harris Bricken in Spain, and it has been very successful. I echo that, Nadia. It's been a lot of fun to work on international transactions with you. Uh, I didn't know how many uh, German affiliations there were uh, in in Washington and in, in the greater U.S., so that's been quite a bit of fun to uh, be able to work with you over the last couple of years. So today we're focused on FDI in Spain. Uh, we had a previous guest, and we talked kind of generally about what's going on in Spain, but we'd love to hear from your perspective as a transactional attorney you know, in Spain with an eye toward toward the continent. Why is Spain uh, a good place to look at for FDI? You know, why should investors be interested? And what are some of the opportunities that you're seeing um, that some of our clients and others who are listening could be interested in? Yes, of course, the spread of COVID-19 has 
touched every facet of Spanish economy as it has done in the worldwide. At this point, it's hard to predict recovery terms. Recently, we did a couple of webinars and we talked about FDI in Spain and um, that's where the idea for this podcast came from. And I cited a McKinsey's report from September 2020 that assumed Spain's economy will recover by the end of 2023. But the situation has changed since then and it keeps changing. We think that the impact of COVID-19 on revenues will vary by sector with slower recovery times likely for sectors suffering stronger shocks. And the less affected sectors in Spain's economy are telecommunications, pharma and medical products, public services, consumer goods, industry, energy, utilities and retail gross groceries, which is about 26% of gross value added or 31% of labor market These sectors uh, might start focusing now on what the business will look like in the future. And we do think that uh, companies will need to determine whether to pursue traditional business models or explore new ones. And considering how their customers' needs and preferences have changed, which in turn might lead to a wave of mergers and acquisitions and partnerships and alliances. And Spain's economy recovery will be neither instant nor easy, but the experience could also be an opportunity to create value in this new normal. In fact, I just some days ago read in the Spanish news that FDI in Spain grew 52% in 2020, which came as a surprise. But uh, this is due to the purchase of Spanish companies. For instance, um, Mass Mobile was um, purchased by U.S. funds uh, And uh, there's a study from the United Nations Conference for Trade and Development that looked ahead to 2021. And uh, it does not expect flows in 2021 to correspond to new investments in productive assets, but to come from cross-border M&As, especially in the technology and healthcare sectors, noting that EU companies are expected to attract more than 60% of agreements in terms of value in the technology sector. I also read another European research study of Savills, Agai, or Newman where the best European real estate investment options for 2021 were analyzed. And it mentioned that Spain still has the best investment offers in Europe. The report highlighted convenience retail, last mile logistical assets located in densely populated areas with growing commerce penetration, which remain attractive for core and core plus investors in Spain. The report also mentioned opportunities in Spain in the low-offer logistical markets and in segments which generate short-term revenues such as co-working, student or multifamily residences or expected increase in demand for hotel assets in difficult situations in prime tourist locations and also in the healthcare and senior housing segment. So there, there are opportunities and we remain very positive about FDI in Spain. And uh, despite the described emergency or the or the emergency regulations we had in the past several months or in the past year that um, clearly uh, showed certain protectionist tendencies that uh, I'm, I would like to explain uh, later, um, we remain positive because we think that uh, there are very good uh, opportunities in Spain and Spain has recovered strongly from the last crisis, which means the economy is growing and stable. Tax incentives have been implemented. Tax incentives for Spanish companies investing in South America. Spain has tax treaties in place with 94 countries to avoid taxation. Labor costs remain much more competitive than in other main European economies. 
the applicable labor laws comparatively attractive for entrepreneurs. And um, Spain has implemented an excellent infrastructure and transport system. So last but not least, Spain is part of an EU framework which guarantees competitiveness, services, and product market liberalization. So this all speaks which just underlines uh, what I was saying. There's really good opportunities here in Spain for investors. And uh, there are some restrictions in place newly that I would like to explain further. Even though here in the United States, the restrictions surrounding the pandemic haven't been as strict as, as the ones in Europe. Yesterday, I was thinking about 2020 and realized that I had not left the United States at any point during 2020, which given my 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 trajectory over the last two decades was pretty dramatic. I think we'd have to go back 30 years, right, for me to find the last year in which I didn't leave the country. It turns out that the last trip I took abroad was to Spain and at the end of 2019, Together with uh, with you and some of our other colleagues in Spain, we offered presentations in Madrid and Barcelona. And, and I remember that at the time, of course, a lot of our focus was was precisely on on promoting cross border trade, both to Spain and also to the United States. And now, of course, looking back, right, that, that seems like a different era since COVID nineteen has changed so much. So, focusing on that, focusing specifically on on the impact of COVID nineteen. How has the pandemic impacted the regulation of FDI in Spain? Yes, traditionally, Spain has been a very liberal foreign direct investment territory, as Spanish law reflected the general principle of liberalization that permeated the European Union treaties. Thus, before the COVID-19 outbreak, Spanish FDI measures only included an exposed notification for statistical purposes for most FDI. So we just we would go to the notary, do the closing, and then file um, paper, um, just notifying. And pre-authorization was only required for a limited number of investments, such as investments from countries considered tax havens, activities related to national defense and security investments in gambling, airlines, and among among other sectors. Now, in response to COVID nineteen. And following also a recommendation from the European Commission, which encouraged member states to advance the application of the so-called FDI screening regulations, which is a European level regulation, um, new FDI restrictions came into place in Spain. Of course, this development is not exclusively related to the COVID outbreak um, since the EU FDI screening regulations that I just mentioned came into force in April 2019 already related to other protective movements in our European level. But of course, the pandemic situation certainly accelerated its implementation in Spain. The main changes introduced by the EU regulation foresee the possibility of member states adopting screening mechanisms on foreign investors for reasons of security or public order. Now, with the issuance of several royal decrees earlier last year, Spain essentially chose to spend its liberal foreign investment regime. And this all happened in the first few months of the pandemic. And then in November of last year, Spain tightened FDI even further. The legislation is aimed especially at protecting Spanish companies operating in sectors the government deems strategic, for example, critical technologies, essential resources uh, such as energy and food, and media. 
So Nadia, if we're talking about foreign investors, I mean, you you and I know that in the securities world, um, you know, you, you have to fit into some kind of classification, right? I mean, whether you may be a foreign investor in the U.S., we may be talking about accredited investors or sophisticated investors. So um, how does the Spanish law talk about foreign investors and uh, why does that matter to potential investors from outside Spain? Yeah, that, that's important. Uh, the um, investor fraud must fall under the definition of a foreign investor, of course. And according to the current regime, this is the case that the investment is made either by residents of countries outside the European Union and the European Free Trade Association or by EU or EFTA investors whose beneficial owners are residents of countries outside EU and EFTA, which I understand is a tricky part. It's from a practical perspective, it seems important to mention that this includes Spanish companies whose ultimate beneficial owners resident in these areas. The ultimate beneficial owner is defined as the individual holding at least 25% ownership of capital, voting rights, or other means of direct or indirect control. And that could mean that the acquisition of a Spanish company share shares by a Spanish company whose CEO or member of the board of directors lives in the UK, which no longer belongs to the EU or EFTA, might now need prior authorization. Um, so, And the November Royal Decree law, they uh, even expanded that definition temporarily until June of this year um, to include residents of other countries of the European Union, the European Economic Area, and requires even of these investors government authorization for investment if the investment goes into a listed company or if the investment exceeds 500 million of euros. So the, the whole definition of the foreign investor is um, defined on the residency except uh, if the investment goes into a listed company or exceeds to 500 million euro. Nadia, you, you bring up a, a fascinating question, which is why would someone who can live in Spain would choose to live in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> I lived in the UK for two years, so I feel like I can make that joke. But <laughs> anyway, um, moving on, let's uh, look a little bit more closely at the criteria that the FDI must meet under under Spanish law. What are what are some of the of the requirements that investors need to look out for? Yes, you also need an objective condition. You need to qualify the transaction as an FDI, and that is only the case if it results in controlling influence over a Spanish company. And that means, since November of last year, that investment uh, is an FDI uh, if it's a consequence of which the investor acquires a share of at least 10% of the capital in a Spanish company or acquires control over the company. Previously, they were talking about participation in management or control that was included in the definition, and this phrasing has been removed. So it is not very clearly defined to what extent control will be interpreted. There's, of course, no case law yet, uh, but according to the interpretations we see um, uh, or legal opinions we've seen, in order to assess whether or not control exists, which would make the investment a qualified FDI investment that might require previous um, authorization, will be necessary to analyze contracts, rights, and any other means that may give its owner the possibility to exercise decisive influence over the company, considering the particular circumstances of the case. So there's room for interpretation, unfortunately. I think it tends to be the case whenever 
new regulations come out that they they're never always thought through to the end the end result and whether it's whether it's going to help or hinder the investment so i think it's common and based on the stats you provided earlier that that hasn't necessarily slowed down fdi in, into spain right even if there are questions regarding how it, how it's actually going to play out so what does this uh, suspension of liberalization imply when we're talking about fdi right essentially that means this, the new spanish regulations mean that prior authorization is required for a much greater number of FDI. And this includes, in some cases that I just mentioned, even investments are from EU member states. But you rightfully said that it seems to just not hinder FDI in Spain. In the practice, we will have to see how uh, the authorities will interpret these new regulations. It will be important, uh, however, to, to determine on a case-by-case -case basis whether specific plant investment falls under any of the mentioned regulations and is subject to the Spanish authorization requirement. And also importantly, um, in these last legislative amendments from November 2020, there are no transitional regulations in place. There's no exception for investments that have already been initiated or signed, but no closed. And that means that a transaction that may now need to be authorized before its closing, even if the underlying contract has already been signed. That is what the suspension means. So did you get a sense that the the purpose of the regulations is to slow down FDI or ultimately to facilitate FDI? I mean, is this, a, is this more of a protectionist measure or do you think it's kind of well-intentioned regulations to help FDI, but that might not necessarily have done exactly what they, they thought it was going to do? It's clearly a protectionist measure. The, these restrictions aim to protect certain critical sectors, as I mentioned, and and these sectors include strategic sectors and um, such as critical infrastructure, critical technology supply, critical inputs, food security. It means that that is the sectors that uh, the government wants to control and wants to be able to control. And there's even uh, in the last amendment in November, there's even room for the government to change even further or restrict, tighten these rules even further. And uh, I understand that that's why there's room for interpretation. Uh, it is to protect, but not to uh, make FDI impossible in Spain. That's no one's interest and no one's, nobody's interest to make FDI impossible. It's just uh, they, the government, the Spanish government wants some control over these investments into critical sectors. Have there been concerns about investments from specific countries? You know, Fred and I closely follow China and Belt and Road Initiative and countries all over the world either tend to embrace or be very hesitant about investments from China. Have there been anything in the Spanish news about concerns about Chinese investment in Spain? They're not concerns about certain countries, but of course, certain investors will always require prior authorization it doesn't matter if the investment is in one of these sectors even. And uh, those are investors that are controlled by government of a third party. So if you're asking, um, that will answer your question, right? If that's an investment controlled by the government of China, then, of course, they will need prior authorization. Yes. Sure. I mean, that makes sense if we're talking about uh Chinese state-owned enterprise investments or, uh, you know, Saudi oil money investments, right? I, I think that, that makes good sense. So Nadia, we've talked about which countries and which type of investments might draw scrutiny based on, on the on the 
government-controlled character of the entities that are that are making it. But are there any sectors or industries that, in their entirety, are affected by the requirement of prior approval? Yes, they are listed in the new regulations, and those are the strategic sectors, and those are sectors such as critical infrastructure, critical technologies, critical inputs, food security, media, and uh, sectors that may impact public health, safety, or public order. And then there's uh, sectors with access to sensitive information, which I'm personally uh, worried about because that criteria gives rise to several interpretation issues, which, of course, are not clarified by Spanish courts yet. Because, uh, in fact, in today's economy, there are very few sectors that, to a greater or lesser extent, do not have access to personal data, which would be sensitive information in, in the sense of that new law. So it has been argued that these sectors with access to sensitive information and, in particular, personal data should be interpreted in a restrictive manner, understanding that it only includes sectors in which there is recurrent and systematic access to sensitive information. I have not seen case law yet, of course, it's just, it's just too recent, these amendments. But exactly, these are the sectors that the government wanted to protect and request requires a previous authorization. What is also interesting is that another question that arises in relation to the new regulations, whether in cases in which the company operates in one of these sectors, just marginal way or without being part of its main activity, it should be understood that the operation is anyway subject to the control mechanism, but of course, we don't know for sure yet. Also, it cannot be ruled out that companies which carry out activities within these sectors indirectly, for example, through their subsidiaries, are regarded as falling within the scope of the new regime. But in any, anyways, if, if there's an FDI that is directed into one of these sectors, we, of course, highly recommend to at least review and determine and make sure that you will not need the previous authorization. Nadia, what is the situation with Spain's pharmaceutical sector? Do you, does Spain have a robust pharmaceutical sector um, or does that they source that from other EU countries? I'm just thinking in terms of you know that kind of public health uh, and what we could also consider critical infrastructure, I would say, right, in terms of making sure that um, they have critical inputs for things like a COVID vaccine. Um, you know, what is um, what's Spain's situation in that regard? That would clearly be one of the cases where uh, prior authorization is required. No doubt about it. Uh, the pharma industry is uh, particularly here in Barcelona. We have some very strong pharma companies, and I don't think we we have um, a vaccine. Yet ready yet. Um, I'm quite not sure right now, but uh, of course, investments in these areas will be uh, are strictly controlled for sure. Yes. So then are there other areas that would be completely restricted or very, very tightly restricted compared to just kind of moderate government scrutiny over investments in those areas? Yes, there there are some investments that will always require strict scrutiny that those are the investments coming from certain investors, uh, as I mentioned before, that are controlled by governments or, or third parties that have been invested or involved in security, public health, or public policy in another EU member state, or if they are subject to judicial or administrative proceedings for engaging in legal or criminal activities. So if the investment falls into these categories, then there's strict scrutiny that, that will always require 
previous prior authorization. But otherwise, the the uh, objective of the government was is just to uh, um, moderate and just to control, but uh, it is not to prevent investment, not at all. So Nadia, how does the authorization procedure work? Yes, the Spanish regulation sets forth that as a condition precedent, the investments that fall within the scope of the control mechanism are subject to prior administrative authorization granted by the Spanish government, and that will be specifically the Council of Ministers. And once the application for authorization is submitted, the Spanish Council of Ministers is the only body entitled to decide whether to grant or reject the authorization. And failure to obtain the authorization within six months is deemed as a rejection. That means uh, your transaction uh, can be delayed, but not more than six months. And uh, there's also, on a temporary basis, uh, Spanish law does provide uh, for an expedited procedure if certain criteria are met. And um, the simplified procedure applies if either we have an existing agreement between the parties or binding offer in which the price is set, which can be evidenced, dated prior to March 18, 2020, so prior to the pandemic, or if the transaction has a value between 1 and 5 million euros. For, so for those transactions, there's an expedited procedure. And um, I believe the in this case, uh, the applications are to be submitted to the Director General for International Trade and Investments, which will decide whether to grant or reject or reject the authorization following a report from the Board of Foreign Investment. And this is within a 30-day period that they have to grant or reject the authorization. So this uh, it adds more formality, but it is much more formality than we had before, which is file a notification and inform the authorities. And, and now we have to proactively ask to be improved or have our transaction proof. That's the difference. You know, that mirrors how, at least the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., we call that CFIUS here in the U.S., especially in the Trump administration, it was tasked with overseeing foreign investment into critical areas. And it still remains a preemptive disclosure, is how I would describe it. So if we have a, a company that's investing in some kind of uh, high technology area from uh, not it was mainly targeted at china i would say but it's it really covers all foreign investments then the lawyers and the parties would need to decide is this a transaction that we need to disclose to cfs or not and so it, it's always an interesting thing uh, you know and, and you could kind of get a safe harbor by preemptively asking for permission, but it was not required in in some areas right the regulations weren't always clear on who had to disclose so i'm curious then what are the consequences of failing to obtain prior authorization in an investment scenario? Right, and it's interesting. Thanks for explaining how that works in the U.S. And this is fairly new for us. There was no no restrictions before, so not no control in that sense. And that's why the the consequences of failure um, pretty, seem shocking to us because. Failing to obtain such authorization before closing could result in the entire transaction being deemed invalid. And that means from a civil law perspective, the investment operations carried out without the required authorization will be null and void. That is, they will have no validity or they will have no legal effect until they are legalized, which brings your whole transaction to fall. And what is more, from an administrative law perspective, failure to seek prior authorization or failure to comply with any conditions set by the Spanish authorities in relation to as well as carrying out investment transactions before being authorized will constitute a very serious infringement and may trigger a fine of at least 
30,000 euros and up to the economic value of the transaction, as well as public or private reprimand. So in light of all these legal changes for any new FDI in Spain, it's very, very commendable determining events whether or not it needs these, the authorization. And it becomes it will become very interesting um, um, for international um, cross-border transactions because they might be part of the transaction outside of Spain that is valid and part of it inside of Spain that turns out not to be valid. So that, that will become really joy for us lawyers. Well, Nadia, it's, it's been a great conversation. I always love to talk about Spain and, and, and frankly, uh, of all the things that I look forward to with regard to the eventual end of the pandemic, I, I look forward to going back to Spain and engaging in, in some more business development work there and just generally going back. So a bit of a bittersweet experience to talk about Spain. But be that as it may, before we bring the podcast to an end, I would like to ask for your recommendations for our listeners. Yes, and I have a recommendation that um, for your listeners, and uh, that will go very well for you too, because it's not it's not the latest or what I'm just now currently reading. It is a book uh, about Barcelona, the city where I live and work, and um, it's this book is one of my favorites since I read it for for the very first time, I believe, 15 years ago. It's called "The Shadow of the Wind" by Carlos Ruiz Zafón. It is written by an author from Barcelona, and he creates a very nice image of Barcelona's sites, of Barcelona places, and that make want you to go there. The characters in the family saga are full of wit and background, and it's the continuity in the story that's just amazing. And it, it actually plays in Barcelona, and it is about a boy whose father initiates him into the secret of the cemetery of the forgotten books and there he finds a book that is called the shadow of the wind and he tries to find more of that author's uh, books and turns out uh, he holds the last copy of every book this author has ever written and in fact before he knows it is uh, he's seemingly innocent quest has opened the door into one of barcelona's darkest secrets an epic story of murder magic madness it's just fascinating it's easy and nice read and then and when you come back to Barcelona, you will love finding those places that uh, you read about in book. Definitely sounds like something I, I must get my hands on. Thank you. Thank you for that. Jonathan, what about you? I'm recommending a webinar presentation that uh, former National Security Advisor and retired General H.R. McMaster did uh, just recently for World Trade Center Utah. Um, the he, I guess you could call it his, it's his, it's his uh, book tour, right? He just wrote a book last year, it was published last year called Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World. And so he spends, you know, 45 minutes talking about his experience, talking about um, his experiences as described in the book, but also kind of laying out uh, from his point of view. And we know he was in the inner circle, I mean, for really the last 30 years, he's been uh, looking at national security. And so um, some really great insights into what uh, we, you know, United States needs to think about and also the world generally in terms of alliances and uh, and what should happen next. So I think that this early in the Biden administration, everyone's trying to give advice to the new administration. And uh, and so it's uh, an interesting piece uh, of of advice into uh, how we should be dealing, particularly in uh, with China and the Asia Pacific region. Fred, what about you? I actually have two recommendations today. One of them is perhaps 
of, of limited appeal to all but the more more intense China watchers. So I have something else that's a somewhat broader appeal. But first recommendation, it is an article that I read on the uh, CSIS website, Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, the think tank. And it's, uh, it's called How the CCP Governs the View from a Chinese Town. And basically... What the piece does is introduce and publish what I'm, what I assume is an internal document from the the local party branch in a small town in China. It offers a, a fascinating window into into how the the CCP governs and what what its priorities and, and worldview are. Again, I mean, I think it's a it's a town of. 11,000 or so, yet this document coming from the local authorities, you know, goes into quite a bit of detail into the the, the threats that are being faced at the national level. It's, it's interesting to see how, how even at this at this level, you can you can see the official language with regard to issues such as Tibet and and how the government has to be on the on the lookout for for potential threats coming from there. I know that these these documents are are. Not widely available, so I'm assuming it's a bit of a fluke, but great opportunity to see this this kind of document and to see it translated. The second recommendation, it, it's a Netflix series. It's a Spanish Netflix series. I wanted to, to make sure that I had something related to Spain. It's a series that's loosely based on a Jack London story. I haven't read the, the Jack London story. I, I'd like to, to get to that. Um, so I don't know how much of a connection there is, but the name of both the London story and the English translation of the title of the series is The Minions of Midas, as in the uh, turns everything that he touches in, in, into gold. And in Spanish, it's Los Favoritos de Midas. And it's very well done, very well done, great acting. To me, at least, it seemed uh, a very timely reflection in, into some of the the issues that that we are seeing and that we discuss on on this podcast right some of the impacts that particular economic developments that are taking place have on people so very thought provoking uh, but overall just just very entertaining so if you're looking for something a little different maybe work on your spanish a little bit maybe just see how they do this kind of uh, drama in, in a different country. Highly recommend it. With that, Nadia, I'd like to once again thank you for being on the on the podcast. We've been trying to get this set up for, for a while, so I'm glad it, it finally happened. Thank you for having me, for inviting me. And it was a great pleasure, as always, talking to you. And I really uh, will check out that Netflix series. I look forward to seeing you guys in Spain next time we can travel, really. So... Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams. Music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.